Yeah, more, more like $30 million and uh, basically turned it, turned it down because I thought, you know, oh, we're worth more than that and we're growing at this fast pace and, you know, in a few years we'll be at $30 million in revenue and, um, and all these kinds of things. And I, I think, you know, I, I talk about in, in the book a bunch, of, a bunch of reasons why I regret it. I mean, one of them is certainly that um, as a founder of a venture-backed startup, do not have the ability to sort of financially benefit from your company's uh, growth until and unless you have an exit, right? right? Um, or if you're growing extremely fast and you're in a sexy space and there's lots of investor interest, sometimes you can sell private shares. So the big question is this, how do you grow your SaaS company? In an era where information is everywhere and every book, expert, blog, and podcast is evangelizing different paths to scale, how do you figure out which path is right for you and your SaaS company? My name is Shiv Narayanan and I'm your host and growth advisor. Formerly, I was the CMO of Wild Apricot and grew to 20 million in ARR without a sales team. This podcast is about a simple idea, that growth can be engineered. Each episode, I will help you filter through the noise and curate and distill growth strategies to help you succeed in growing your SaaS company. Welcome to How to SaaS. Let's get started. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about how you can work with How to SaaS and what kinds of clients we work with. We have three solutions. We provide CMO consulting, where we walk you through our nine box marketing framework to fully audit your funnel and marketing activities and we give you a strategy and roadmap to scale your demand generation and digital marketing. Number two, we provide PE advisory services where we work with private equity investors to scale the growth of their portfolio companies through consulting programs, training, and board member services. And number three, we run the world's flagship demand generation training program for SaaS companies and their marketing executives, leaders, and team members. It's a 12-week intensive that gives you the frameworks you need to scale your SaaS company's demand generation using paid media, SEO, content marketing, nurture programs, website optimization, and more. To check out all these solutions and to get more information, set up a free consult at www.howtosass.com. Also, if you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher and leave us a rating or review so that other people looking for content like this can also discover it. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Now, on to the show. A couple of years ago, I read this book. It's called Small Giants. And what it talks about is how to build a business uh, in a slow in and meticulous fashion without taking on too much investment so you can retain control and grow the business your way. And and that book had a really big impact on me in terms of how I view building businesses. Um, one of the backstories about Wild Apricot is that it was founder funded um, for the first uh, 11 years or so until our exit in, in 2017. And that allowed us to do a lot of things um, in terms of growing the company, in terms of culture, in terms of strategy, that when I looked around the Toronto or just SaaS ecosystem, I didn't see a lot of people doing because they were going out and raising venture capital of 10, 15, 20, or $50 million. And so the decisions, the way we were making them and the way those companies were making them were completely uh, different. And 
so it got me really thinking about what is the right way to build a business. And when I looked at a lot of those companies, I noticed that the founders, even though they might have the CEO title and be the executives of the company, they didn't really have a lot of control. And because they raised a lot of money, a lot of other people had a seat at the table and got to talk about which way to take the company, which often led to a lot of mistakes. Um, which brings me to this episode's guest. Um, it's Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz. Most of you probably know him. He's um, done a phenomenal job of building Moz into one of the best SaaS companies out there. Um, and most recently, he stepped down from his role and he's going gone on to fa- found another company called Spark Toro. Um, so I wanted to bring Rand on because I started reading his book. Uh, it's called Lost and Founder. Uh, it came out last year and just as I had started reading it, I was just blown away by Rand's insights in the book and how vulnerable and honest he was about some of the mistakes that he had made and turns he had wished he had not taken or things he would do differently. So I immediately reached out to him on LinkedIn and he was gracious enough to come on the podcast to talk about uh, that journey. And there's a lot of knowledge in there to be uh gain for other SaaS founders and as they're thinking about scaling their business. Um, and instead of talking about things like SEO, I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with Rand and his work, you've probably listened to Whiteboard Friday and seen a lot of the SEO best practices that Moz has shared over the years. Instead, I wanted to talk about that journey simply because that's a side of business that doesn't get talked about enough, which is the personal side, how it impacts entrepreneurs themselves, uh, their families, financially, what type of risks they take, and what an emotional toll it takes when you try to build a business yourself. Um, and so Rand and I discuss a lot of what happened at Moz, what led to his eventual exit, and the five things Rand is doing differently this time around as he's building Spark Toro. It's a fascinating episode, so I'm really looking forward to for you guys to hear it. Uh, one small apology, the audio quality on the episode is a little off. It's not as up to quality as it normally is. Uh, there's a couple of times where the audio skips a little bit. There might be an echo on my side, and that's because there was something wrong with the software when it was recording. But uh, it is more than good enough for you to have a good listen and get all the insights out of the episode. And so I ask you, just bear with it. It is a phenomenal interview. Rand is amazing in it as well. So uh, have a listen, guys, and let me know what you think. Enjoy. All right, Rand, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good, good. Uh, Shiv, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for being on. Um, I'm actually super excited to have you on as a guest, um, especially given your recent book, uh, Lost and Founder. And obviously, I think uh, for the half of a person that doesn't know who you are and your, your history with Moz, do you want you, do you want to just give the audience an overview of uh, your background? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I started a company called Moz uh, with my mom, Jillian, in 2003, originally as a blog and then a consulting company uh, in the SEO world and then a software company in SEO. And so Moz uh, makes software that helps web marketers to you know, get their content, their web pages ranked well in Google and to maintain those rankings, track them, and um, you know, improve their link profiles, all those kinds of things. Um, I was CEO at Moz for seven years from 2007 to 2014 and uh, then stepped down and became an individual contributor there for about three, three and a half years and then um, just recently left to start a new company called SparkToro, which is in the what we're calling the audience intelligence world, but 
Shiv, I'll describe the product to you at some point, and you tell me what it should be called because we've been struggling with, uh, <laughs> with what this this niche, this sector is called. We're not sure, sure. it has a name. Sure, sure, and, and and just to add just to add some color to that background, I mean, Moz is the go-to company when it comes to SEO tools, or at least one of them. And, and Rand has been one of the thought leaders in the space for more than a decade now. Um, in fact, he hosts Whiteboard Friday, even still now that he's not part of Moz. That's correct, right, Rand? You've you still been doing weekly episodes of that. Uh, so I filmed a number before I left, and Moz will publish those on occasion. I, I think they're probably running pretty low. So okay, I almost over. Find out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'll find yes. out if you're going to have me back for more of those. But yeah, you're right. Uh, good point. Um, Moz is a yeah started as you know obviously a very tiny company and now is doing about fifty million dollars in revenue. Has about thirty five thousand uh, paying customers, subscribers. Um, about one hundred and sixty employees, most of them here in Seattle, Washington, uh, where I started the company. And um, yeah, a, a relatively big brand presence. I think gets you know somewhere between three and three and a half million in visits mm -hmm. per month. Right. And and so I wanted to have you on to, to talk about SEO because of your background. And um, it seemed like the right topic to touch on. But then I've been reading your book, Lost and Founder. Yeah. And as, as someone who's an operator and uh, running Wild Apricot, it really resonated with me. I see a lot of amazing and deep themes uh, that I think founders really struggle with. Um, and it goes well beyond tactical and even strategic topics of how to grow a SaaS company. So I thought we would focus a discussion on that just to hear hear your take on on your journey and all the things that have happened. So why don't we start with why you decided to write the book? Because I, I was really interested to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I kept having the same conversations over and over with people in the in the startup and tech world, but also in the web marketing world and in the entrepreneurial world. And I felt like there was a better way uh, to help scale those conversations, to have the, you know, there's 17 or 18 chapters in the book. And, and I wanted to kind of take those 17 or 18 topics of discussion that I kept having over and over again, every coffee meeting, you know, every time we go out for beers um, with all these folks and, and try and scale that so that other people could hear those. Like my, you know, my pitch to publishers was basically, um, Silicon Valley startup culture has brought a lot of positive things to the world, but it's also created a lot of myths and um, cultural elements that bias founders and entrepreneurs to do dumb things. <laughs> yeah. And I want to write this book to help people avoid them. Right, right. Uh, and you, you talk a lot about how cultural phenomena like the social network and these startup movies or, or the success stories of companies that have pivoted um, are the ones that end up getting revered by the media. But that's you, those are usually the anomalies, and 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 a lot of founders miss that, and they think that that, that that's actually the norm. I think that's right. Yeah, and so so going going through uh, sections that I've been reading, um, and, and I haven't gone through the entire book. I'm about 100 pages in, so uh, I'm I'm just going to jump through some things that really jumped out to me. Um, was the first thing you 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 mentioned is that um, you know for entrepreneurs sometimes you think that you're going to actually jump into jump into your passion when you start your own own company but really uh, it's it's not that you're not jumping into your passion necessarily it's about 
furthering a mission or furthering uh, a way to better the world and whatever, doing whatever it takes to make that happen. And one of the examples that you used is uh, when Sarah Bird, who's now the CEO of Moz, uh, uh, had to jump into your engineering department to figure out all the things that were wrong, even though it may not have been what you and her were trained to do, but it was what was necessary. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that, so these two you know, chapters and topics sort of tie together, right? One is that um, as an entrepreneur, I think we're often told, oh, you should follow your passion. And you know, you, if you start your own company, you'll get to do what you love. And that's, that's not technically accurate. Uh, building a company means doing a lot of things that you will not love at all. I'll, I'll give you an example. I just started this company, SparkToro. Um, I can tell you some things that I really hate doing. Um, asking rich people for money. <laughs> that is that is deeply uncomfortable for me, right? But but uh, that was part of my fundraising process, right? I knew that I wanted to raise this angel round, and and so you know it was a networking and phone calls and and coffee meetings and yeah, really really uncomfortable conversations for me. And uh, that was not not doing what I love, but it was enabling something that I hope you know I will love uh, in the future. Uh, I, I spent inordinate amounts of time setting up a bunch of you know. Um, tax stuff and uh, financial stuff, accounting stuff, um, you know, uh, uh, legal trademarks, uh, registrations, you know, just all this paperwork and documentation and, you know, um, red tape. And I hate that stuff. Gosh, that drives me batty. I spent three hours on the phone with state tax offices a few weeks ago. That, that's not fun at all. That's not my passion, but I'm enabling something. Right. And so I, I, this as a company scales, as it becomes bigger, you will find yourself having to do getting to do less and less of what you love to do and more and more of enabling a vision. And if you're if you get comfortable with that, that can work out great. But if you go into it thinking I will get to do what I love, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And I think that's that's another myth that, you know, entrepreneurship culture sort of creates for us that, that this is going to be a passion. Likewise. You know, going to your example about uh, about Sarah jumping into engineering, um, we come to our startups and to our companies with certain strengths and weaknesses, um, and a certain amount or lack thereof of self awareness around what we can and cannot accomplish, and what we're good at and bad at, and investing in those things, investing in, in self awareness, investing in our weaknesses, and trying to turn them into strengths or um, structuring our companies so that we don't need strength in areas that we are weak in, uh, which is which is pro probably one of my biggest tips. And I think one of the least talked about ways to work around those problems or work through them um, can be can be huge. So I, you know, I mentioned sort of these like levels of knowledge and experience and expertise and and how Sarah sort of upgraded her own by digging into this process. Um, and how how founders and entrepreneurs can do that and use that as a way to bolster areas they might have weaknesses in, whether that's you know on the technical side or the marketing side or sales or operations or financials, whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, why do you think this is a some this is something that escapes founders, and uh, why do you think the approach is is not the same in this way, it, or the myth that passion is what uh, is what starts the business and keeps the business running. Where does that come from? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I, I think that there's there's some element of it where the uh, sort of the the passion there is passion at its core that is driving 
you know, an entrepreneur to take this risk? Because generally speaking, right, entrepreneurship is a, a risky endeavor. Uh, most of the people who start companies, most entrepreneurs, in fact, come from families with money because they're the ones who can afford to take the risk. Um, and and that is not even doubly. I think it's triply true in in, in the tech world. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that being said, going and working at a big company is almost definitely going to make you more money uh, mm -hmm. over, you know, 10 years, 20 years than starting your own business. And so the reasons that we start our own business are different. And one of those absolutely is because we want to do things our way. And I think it just gets oversimplified into this, you'll get to do what you love, you get to follow your passion, as opposed to you will have to do lots of things that you hate, uh, lots of things that are uncomfortable, lots of things you're unfamiliar with and bad at, in order to enable the vision of what you want to create in the world. Um, and I, I think that's not talked about as much because it's not sexy and it, it doesn't inspire people to go into entrepreneurship. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have that conversation. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I recently read a book. It's called Small Giants, and it talks about companies that uh, specifically focus on being really great at something instead of trying to grow. Um, and it's it, it really comes. Yeah. What, what is it called? Small giants. Um, Small giants. I am. I'm putting that on my list because that is yeah. that speaks to me, man. Yeah, it's one of the best books I, I've ever read, and it reminds me of actually a lot of what we've done at Wild Apricot over the years, um, because it talks about a lot of characteristics that these companies have. One of them is that they never give up a majority stake in their company. Uh, they listen a lot to their customers. They build a culture that serves their employees, and there's there's a whole list of things that they do. Um, but what really resonated with me is is this, this idea that you you know you're building a company not necessarily for an exit, which is often what happens in Silicon Valley, or or that's the that's the hope. Uh, you start off with that goal in mind, and oftentimes that doesn't happen because your expectations are misaligned. Um, and also just the the idea that the company is a mechanism for making a difference in the world. Uh, one of the examples they use is uh, the company Cliff Bar, which makes those those energy bars. Um, uh -huh. And how the founder had a chance to sell the whole whole company, and then instead ended up walking away from the sale and inst buying out his uh, fifty fifty partner, and that cost them millions of dollars that they had to pay over like ten years or something like that. But he did it because of the passion that he had in the business and to do whatever it takes to succeed, including paying that co-founder over ten years. I think it was like sixty million dollars or, or something like that, which is which is yeah. a heavy heavy price to pay. Hey, I mean when you. When you find a business and a calling that, you know, is what you love, I, I can totally understand not wanting to let go of it, right? And I think that, you know, there's a lot of examples of how people get the the tens of millions of dollars to pay out and, and they, you know, um, they sort of regret it. I think the, the reverse is also true. I mean, I wrote about it in the book. Um, mm -hmm basically an, an offer that I had to sell Moz that I almost certainly should have taken um, and that would have been, you know, incredibly lucrative and would have given me a lot of experience. And, and I think, you know, I probably could have started another company and I, I regret that a lot. So I think, you know, it goes on, it goes on both sides. There's, um, yeah, it's a, so can, it's a challenging topic. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, <clears throat> actually for me, it's, I haven't gone to that part of the book yet. And I think okay. for the audience, audience, it would be great to hear from you. Like uh, when you receive that, because you mentioned it in the introduction, so I was looking forward to that part. But uh, just curious, like 
what were the circumstances and why do you wish you took the offer and, and, and um, what would you change looking, looking back now? Yeah, so circumstances were it was 2011. Um, we were growing from about five to ten million dollars in revenue. I think we we started that, or sorry, we ended 2010 with 5.7 million in revenue, and we would we would basically double that in uh, 2011. And so at the start of 2011, January, I had this um, this meeting, and roughly you know thirds, maybe it would have been as much as 40. Um, and uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, more more like thirty million dollars, and uh, basically turned it turned it down because I thought, you know, oh, we're worth more than that, and we're growing at this fast pace, and you know, in a few years we'll be at thirty million dollars in revenue, and um, and all these kinds of things. And I, I think, you know, I, I talk about in in the book a bunch of a bunch of reasons why I regret it. I mean, one of them is certainly that um, as a founder of a venture backed startup you do not have the ability to sort of financially benefit from your company's uh, growth until and unless you have an exit, right? right? Um, or if you're growing extremely fast and you're in a sexy space and there's lots of investor interest, sometimes you can sell private shares. Um, my wife and I have sold a small amount of private shares and you know I think that, that actually um, has, has been super helpful as sort of a, um, a life raft at a tough time. But uh, we, you know, I, I think there's a lot of financial challenges in our and our family's lives that we look around and go, man, if, you know, even even if it had been a really tough few years at, you know, the acquiring company, which I don't think it would have been, I, I still know the those guys well and, you know, get along famously with them. Um, I, I I think that probably would have been the right decision. And, and I I think that you know there's a there's a culture in Silicon Valley of don't sell out early, you know build big businesses. You know we need to mm-hmm. stop with this culture of acquisitions and um, and small exits. But I think that doesn't recognize the you know the cost that that has on on those um, whatever founders and and early employees who, who often make a lot of money as well. Um, financial lives and how that can change things for themselves and their families and. Uh, people around them, and um, how often it is that foregoing one of those offers uh, will lead to, you know, in my case, be pro- probably going to end up being ten years, maybe more, of non-liquidity uh, from that. So, yeah, there's uh, mm-hmm. obviously some of that is is personal reasons, some of it's sort of professional reasons. I also talk about how the acquiring company eventually had an IPO a few years later, and how the stock that they were offering us probably would have been worth, you know, 10 times as much. So that might have actually turned into a $100 million offer. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So lots of mistakes made. Right. Right. And uh, Uh, we actually, actually, Wild Africa went through an acquisition uh, in October 2017. And so we've seen the other side of that where we actually did sell the business uh, to, to a company called Personify. And now we're in the process of integrating, which comes with its own set of challenges uh, and exciting opportunities at the same time. Uh, but I completely hear you on the flip side of like, hey, what if you don't sell and what is what is the other side of that? Um, connected to this topic, there is one question I would like to ask is, and I think a lot of people who have been following your work for many years would, would like to know is, what exactly happened at Moz that led to that parting of ways and if, if you're willing to share that i would love to hear that and if you're not i completely respect that as well 
Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this in my blog post, but the you know, basic story is that um, I had stepped down uh, from the CEO role in 2014 and promoted my longtime chief operating officer to that role. Um, and she and I uh, had been close friends for a long time. And then we, you know, we ended up having some um, professional conflict and that bled over into some personal conflict and, and led to my departure um, mm. in, uh, yeah, at the start of this year. And, uh, and that, that sucks. It's sad. Um, I think, you know, it's sad for everyone. Uh, I, I'm sure she would say the same thing. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, it's, a definitely a tough situation, but also I will say this, Shiv, I, uh, I am loving building a new company. Um, mm -hmm. I think I love small things and, um, I think I'm, I'm happier and more productive than I've been in, you know, seven years, eight years. So it's a good feeling. Yeah. And I've been noticing on, on Spark Toro. And by the way, thank you for sharing that. Um, it's obviously not easy when you're working yeah. with someone you're so close to and all that. So thank you for sharing that. Um, in, in terms of Spark Toro, I, I've been following the blog and some of the posts that you make. And, and as, as always, like the posts are really amazing. I really encourage the audience to check out the Spark Toro blog. Um, really detailed posts from Rand and they're super high value and you can learn a lot uh, from each of those blog posts. So uh, recommend that for sure. But why don't you t take this as an opportunity to talk about what you're what you're ex exactly building at Spark Toro and uh, what the mission is there and what problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, so Spark Toro is um, going to be software for for marketers, uh, again, not in the SEO field, but rather in this yeah, this world that we, we've sort of been calling audience intelligence. And the idea behind it is that um, every time you need to go create demand um, for your business or um, you know, your organization or you personally, you go out to discover the sources that influence your audience. You might have a target audience that you want to reach. And to find that target audience you know, you'll you'll sort of figure out who your ideal customers are, and then you'll 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 recognize attributes in them, and then you try and figure out, okay, well, uh, what podcasts do they listen to, and what events do they go to, and what YouTube channels they subscribe to, and what blogs do they read, and what you know publications, mainstream media publications do they read, and who do they follow on Twitter, all these kinds of things, and that right now is an incredibly slow, manual, you know, spreadsheet and search-driven process. Um, and I've watched a bunch of people do it, right? Tons of marketers do it, especially in fields like content marketing and public relations, social media marketing, influencer marketing, right? All, all these professional marketers do it. Um, and it is so manual and so time consuming. It'll be weeks of work, literal weeks of work uh, to build these lists. And mm -hmm. I thought, that's, that's silly. Software should do this. You know, you should be able to, let's say you want to reach, you know, interior designers on the West Coast of the United States. You should be able to enter interior designers, interior decorators, and see a list of here are the podcasts that they listen to. Here are the events they go to. Here are the blogs they subscribe to. Here's who they follow on Twitter. Like that, that should be available at your fingertips and nothing like that exists right now. There's you know, some, ex some very expensive tools that are very journalist focused like Cision and Gorkana and such. Um, but yeah. that breadth and ease is, is lacking in the market. And so that's what we want to build. We would actually at Wild Africa definitely use that because influencer marketing is a big part of our strategy. So, uh, sounds really interesting. Um, so let me ask you this: the wait, product wait, sounds, before, sounds before you go on. 
Well, can I ask you, what do you, what is that field called? What is that process called? The process of? Finding the sources of um, uh, the, the, the people, publications, you know, sources, channels that influence your given audience. Uh, the closest term I would say is influencers. Uh, that's or people that the people that influence our buyers in terms of the decisions that they're making. So we're, we're, we, we look up, we look out for podcasters, authors, experts in the field, consultants, implementation partners. There's, there's all kinds of people in the space because we serve association executives. So there, there's a big industry around them. So it's just finding out who are all the people who are working in this space. Um, so we, we have like a huge spreadsheet where we're tracking all that and we invite some of them to do webinars with us. In the future, we will probably launch a Wild Apricot podcast and invite those same people. But uh, it would be great to have like some kind of a CRM or something to, to manage all of that. Yeah, interesting. Huh. Yeah, so we, I mean, we've shied away from using the term influencer marketing because we get the sense that it just means yeah. sort of half-naked people on Instagram and YouTube. Um, yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, good to hear. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a good idea. Um, and we should talk more about that. I'm happy to give you um, user feedback in terms of building out SparkToro because we do a lot of that. So we, I'm happy to cool. chat about that. Um, so tell me, this, in terms of building SparkToro, given that you've gone on this, you know, almost 15, what is it, 15, 16 years of building Moz um, to today, now you're starting a second company. What are you doing differently this time around based on the lessons that you have in the book, Lost and Founder, and, and your own personal journey of, of mistakes and, and some uh, challenges that you face? Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, many, many challenges, right? I think that that, that that really almost summarizes the book is sort of here are all these challenges that I've that I faced in the yeah. 17 years, right, to your point, building Moz. No, so I guess I guess not as much the challenges, but I would say, what are you doing differently with Spark Toro? Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, a, a bunch of things. So one of the biggest things, uh, and I talk about this at the at the very end of the book, but but I think it's um, you know salient to bring it up is is that uh, the funding for Moz is obviously venture capital. At, at this point, Moz has raised twenty million dollars in, in BC uh, mm-hmm. across three rounds. And, you know, that, that comes with requirements, right? The, the, the expectation, the requirement there is, you know, return a minimum of three to five and hopefully more like 10 times that amount of money uh, back to your investors um, or alternatively die trying, right? right. Um, you know, the venture capital model is very uh, comfortable with and has gotten used to the sort of, yeah, you know, eight out of the 10 companies that we invest in are going to fail and, and, and not return any funds and, you know, go out of business or be acquired for parts. Um, and the, you know, the other one or two hopefully will make up for the rest of them by, by returning a very large amount uh, mm-hmm. to the fund. And so th- that is really, really different from sort of building a, a bootstrapped business or a business that is, you know, f- um, angel funded or one that's funded by, you know, some of the alternative sources out there, um, there's some accelerators, there's some, you know, unique types of funds. Uh, I think one of the, you know, one of the, the um, most amplified in our field is, is Indie VC, right, doing a sort of profitable focused 
business building, funding. And those, I think those alternatives are much more interesting to me this time around. And because of that, uh, there's a lot of challenges that I can avoid, right? So we raised a round of funding for SparkToro. It's 1.3 million uh, from 35 you know, angel investors. And in, in that round, the way we structured it is we can become a really interesting, exciting uh, business without, um, without having to be a billion-dollar success, without having to make $100 million in revenue. Right. Um, we can return, you know, we can be a, a, a very good return for our investors uh, simply by being profitable. If the business turns out to be, you know, a $5 million a year business that um, costs 2 or $3 million to run, everyone's going to be happy. If it turns out that it can be a $15 million business, going to be very happy there. If it turns out it's a $50 or $100 million business, obviously people can be happy there too. Um, and so by structuring our initial round in this way, um, and focusing on getting to profitability and then growing profitably, uh, we preserve a lot of optionality. And profit, you know, profitable companies and, and getting to profitability uh, is actually a wonderful requirement. Um, and I'm not, I'm not as big a fan of the, you know, spend fast to grow faster mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of be, you know, be in the hole for many years or, or a decade plus uh, before you ever, you know, get to profitability, but you're, you're growing incredibly fast. I, I think Uber is the, you know, the prime example of this where they, they you know, never turned a profit and they're still years, maybe a decade away from being able to turn a profit. Um, you know, every ride is costing them money because, but it's subsidized by sort of investment dollars. And the hope is that, you know, they can, mm-hmm. they can grow and eventually uh, mechanize their workforce and, and fire all their drivers. And then, you know, when self-driving cars come, then they'll 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 be able to turn a profit that way. Um, right. But yeah, it's a it's a different kind of you know different kind of bets for different kind of people. And I I like this um, profitable uh, structure. I like smaller things. I like um, having that uh, having the ability to be successful, even if uh, it is not in this you know, in this one way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, yeah, actually you hit on a bunch of things that, um, that I've experienced firsthand is that wild apricot, we've, we grew to about 10 million in AR without a sales team and it was uh, founder funded. And uh, when we got acquired, we, it changed the rate at which we were expected to grow. And that's something, one of the things that we're figuring out. And there's a lot of opportunity inside Wild Apricot to find those growth levers. Uh, but things like, you know, growth rate and EBITDA are even more of a focus than ever before. And that's something which we're figuring out right now in terms of how to balance that. And that that book of um, the Small Giants book that I mentioned, one of the things it says is these companies are profitable from the beginning. Um, which I think sometimes gets overlooked when, when you're in growth, growth, growth mode, you're CAC, you, you're happy to blow it out of proportion to fund the growth, to see some return 10 years down the line. But in that process, you're burning a lot of cash. And then the return that you need to generate, like you're saying, is significantly different. Like if you raise 30 million, you have to at least get 100 million of an exit, right? To get your investors some kind of a return that they are happy with. Whereas if you raise only 1.3 million, like you're saying, then 
everything is gravy uh, as long as you achieve some level of success. Yeah, well, and um, I mean, I think it's who you raise it from and how, right? Because in our structure, what, one of the other very unique things is that we, we are still an LLC, not a C-Corp, and we can pay uh, dividends to our investors. And once we pay our investors back from our, you know, the dividends of profits, uh, we, we pay ourselves in profits as well. So there's sort of a, you know, once, say you were an investor share, right? And you put in $50,000. Uh, once we pay you back $50,000 in, um, you know, dividends, uh, we, Casey and I, start to also benefit from the dividends that we, um, that we pay out from the company. Right. And so right. it sort of has this, um, this model where we're, we're obviously strongly incentivized to make sure that you get your money back and get it back quickly. And then... Uh, everybody benefits pro rata, you know, according to their share ownership in the company um, from profits over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, question for you in terms of the 1.3 million raise, I'm not sure if this is public information, um, but the 35 investors that invested at the 1.3 million uh, raise, like what percentage of the company did you give up and were you intent on keeping a majority of your company? Uh, let's see, I own. 49% so I guess no <laughs> um, but that being that being said um, our incorporation docs I mean it, it is a lot less about what percent of the company you own and a lot more about um, how the docs are structured so basically uh, until and unless I choose voluntarily to you know step down from the CEO role um, there's not there's not really a process to remove me so uh, you know I, I have um, uh, complete control over the company. Right, for, board for, seats or anything like that? Nope, we did not do a formal board of directors for this round. Um, and I don't think we're, we're planning on doing that. We may end up building a board of investors and advisors uh, informally, but I think um, not not the formal structure that, that sort of venture-backed firms have. Um, we, don't, we don't have the same fiduciary requirements and those sorts of things. Uh, now, that being said, uh, yeah, so I think we gave... Uh, maybe a little over twenty percent of the company in the round. Okay, just about there. So you know, pretty similar, very very similar to a a, um, a seed funding or a Series A for a venture back startup. Got it. Okay, that's interesting. One well, one one last thing I, I was going to say is that if other folks are interested in other startups, other entrepreneurs, other founders or investors are interested in checking this out, we uh, worked with our attorney to open source the documents that we used for this unusual form of funding. Um, three or four companies have already reached out to me and they're gonna be using them in their funding rounds. And so I, I definitely encourage folks, you can go to the SparkToro blog and uh, and find those docs. They're in an open Google Drive file uh, that I no linked to. Way. Yeah, so anyone is welcome to use them and, and I hope I hope people do if they find it interesting. That is so cool. Okay, I will actually share that link when uh, we post this episode. I think I think that's an awesome awesome uh resource and i actually just found the blog post on oh, cool. yeah it's like it's recent right you just posted it yeah, on, yeah. On this, is, this is just a month ago i think that we not even a month ago that we raised this one yeah, it's for the audience it's posted on june 7th if you want to look for it but i'll post it with this episode um okay so ren so you mentioned funding that's one thing that you're doing differently what else are you going to do differently or have done differently uh yeah so i mean certainly one of the things is we are being extraordinarily frugal. So we raised a $1.3 million round. And I, I mean, I remember when we raised the 1.1 million in 2007 for Moz, right? And I 
we basically spent through almost all of that. I think we were down to about three hundred thousand uh, dollars a year later. And <laughs> Casey and I, um, and then then we turned the corner, right? We became profitable. We we launched this sort of product that we had invested in. We became profitable. Um, I think we got we got lucky, and also we chose wisely and made some good investments and had some good people. Obviously, building some good tech, uh, picked a good market, had good timing, all those kinds of things. But um, in this case, Casey and I are being extremely patient. So I, I work from a shed out back of my house. Casey works from his home or, you know, sometimes he'll come to the shed um, and we'll work together. We are spending next to nothing. Um, you know, my, my salary is actually deferred uh, except for, I think it's $800 a month that I get paid so that I can qualify for health insurance, right? The minimum that yeah. you have to pay. So, you know, doing all sorts of things, everything we can to just preserve that capital and give us a long runway to go validate that this product is going to be right, that this market is going to be big enough and exciting enough. Um, you know, building the V1 entirely ourselves, doing all the marketing and all the, you know, all the everything for the business uh, entirely ourselves. And that, um, you know, I think we might be, maybe that's overkill, right? Maybe we, we could probably afford to spend a little bit of money here and there. Uh, but we're very passionate about wanting this round to last us um, until we get the company profitable and growing. And uh, and as a result, you know, we're keeping things really, um, really frugal. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason for that is just we're talking about oxygen, right? As much runway as possible to see through the, the idea and, and test out the market and all that just to find a fit with the product. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, you know, I think that I will feel I will feel much more confident about spending once we have, you know, a, a version in the wild that people can see and play with, and it's resonating with folks um, and working well. And then I'm going to feel like, okay, we now now we can start spending into our money because I, you know, into our funding because I can see kind of the light the end of the tunnel. I can see how this turns into a profitable growing business, and here's the growth rate and here are things that are working for us. Uh, but until that point, I just want to be incredibly conservative, give ourselves a lot of time to figure that out. Right, right. Uh, that's great, being extraordinarily frugal. Okay, what's number three? Or is there a number three? Yeah, um, I mean, another. I think another big change, certainly in, um, in how I'm approaching SparkToro, is uh, doing things very differently from a... Um, uh, product design perspective. So I, I think when you know when I built the initial Moz toolset, and even even many years later at Moz, um, I I think I got lucky a few times, and then I got cocky and dumb. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that's probably happened to a lot of people, right? Um, it's probably happening to some of some of us right now, right? We're we're we think we're being smart, and in fact, we're being lucky, and and that will make us cocky in the future. Yeah. Uh, where and and I basically did not do a ton of um, what I'd call hands-on, sort of deep customer research. So so not just you know not just researching my market and sort of interviewing people, but like doing the work myself, watching other people do the work. Um, asking them for their work products and, and to see those, um, you know, interviewing folks about that, um, trying to live the life of my customers uh, as much as as much as I can. And I think that that you know that was something where I felt like, oh well, I had I was I spent seven years as a consultant in SEO, so I know what I'm doing at Moz, and 
you know, I know what products people need and I go to a lot of conferences and events and I see what people are talking about. So I, I think I've got a good sense of this as opposed to, hey, let me actually sit down with people and watch them do the work and do the work with them and try to do the work that they're doing and, um, you know, uh, interview them and talk to them about that work and what's frustrating and, you know, what they're having a hard time with. And that's something where, you know, now I'm doing that much, much more regularly in small ways and big ways. Um, but with everyone I possibly can't, you know, yourself included, right? Oh, I want to hear about how, you know, I want to hear about how you guys are, are, you know, discovering the people and publications that influence your audience and, you know, how do you do that and go through it. So it, it, that has been um, a big change for me as well. Uh, I think that's one where the classic Silicon Valley advice of spending a lot of time with your customers and digging deeply into their processes is really healthy. Um, and yeah. certainly advice in the following. Yeah, and doing things that don't scale. Yeah. Even though, it, even though it's super painful and it's a grind, man. It's trying to talk to customers one at a time. It's not really a, a built for scale company, but you have to do that in the beginning just to really build that empathy for you, for the market that you're building a product for. Yeah. 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 Um, number four, or is, are those the three things? Number four. Uh, well, let's see, I think definitely very different, you know, this time around is the um, the way that we're building systems. I, and I think this is, you know, this is now best practices, but on the engineering side, um, we are building a lot of little services that all connect to each other. Um, you could almost call them microservices, I think. And yeah. uh, rather than big, you know, big hulking systems that are, you know, sort of monolithic. These, yeah, monolithic, exactly. And and when they break, there's a lot of diagnosis required. You know, anything that breaks, uh, granted, SparkToro's technology is, is in the very early stages, but anything that breaks right now, like we instantly know what it is because it only does that one little thing. Um, right. And I think that's also, you know, that's a little bit of a best practice that has been um, a big change for us. Moz struggled for years because we would often have this big monolithic technology that, that broke down and fell apart. Um, and I think uh, we've, we've learned from those mistakes. Casey is actually spending a, an extraordinary amount of time documenting, uh, doing good documentation for his code just because he's had so much, um, so many bad experiences of people coming in and having to learn what he's built. And uh, so even though there's no one else who works at the company, you know, on the software, um, he's still making sure that, you know, uh, whatever, if, if three more people come in tomorrow, they, they'd be able to figure out what he did and why he did it that way. And, um, you, you know, work on his stuff. So yeah, a bunch of changes. Yeah. I think this is a, this is a really big one on the product side. Uh, I can speak from the wild apricot experience. Our system is kind of like a Frankenstein or was more of a Frankenstein about three years ago where you have, because um, we have, you can send emails through our platform, you can host events, it has a website builder, um, payments, there's all, we have mobile applications, there's so many different areas of the system, and it was all, they were all interconnected, and they were not microservice based, and that took a lot of time for us to put into place, but now the, our world, in terms of development, is way faster, the customer experience is way better, because features are released faster, um, the way they interact with the tool, the response times, the uptime, all that kind of stuff has gotten significantly better so it was yeah. worth the investment but doing it from the very beginning is a is a really bit really smart move because then you don't have to suddenly refactor your software 
you know, two, three years, two, three years in and that costs money, right? Yeah. Well, and I think, I think it's one of those things where unless you've been through it, you know, unless you've experienced that pain, um, it's hard to, it's hard to justify, right? Especially in the early stages where you have this like, go fast, go fast. How do I, you know, how do I build this thing and release it more quickly? Not, you know, how do I spend hours and hours making sure that um, the documentation is high quality, that it feels funny. Uh, yeah. But it it is really valuable uh, in the long term. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think when this happens in the startup phase, because people are taking shortcuts to get you know ship ship the product faster. Yeah, but, absolutely. But, and know, I understand you, that, right? I think the the demand of of shipping fast is is a real thing, right? That's part of the you know when you have, for example, when you have. Um, investment capital and you rent out office space and you're trying to compete for talent and so you're paying very high prices for that talent and you're paying high prices for that office space and you know you're trying to provide um, luxurious sorts of benefits because that's how you retain the the talent that you you know want and you know that builds on itself and it becomes this oh man our runway is shrinking and shrinking because of how much we're spending and so we need to get things out fast. We can't afford to do them right now. We'll we'll do them right in a few years. It might be painful, but we're not going to survive unless we get it out fast. And so I think this, you know, a lot of things tie to how you structure the business. Um, mm-hmm. And that, um, I think that structure can bring great benefits. Yeah, I, and I think a great resource on this microservices concept is uh, Spotify released a video a few years back called... Uh, Spotify's engineering culture it's two videos and they talk about how they run their engineering team but also how that engineering team works on their product and can release the different areas of the product like if somebody's working on the playlist somebody else is working on the music library and they can be simultaneously released without affecting either area of the product so I highly recommend that to anybody that's involved on the product side um, of the business yeah very uh, cool. yeah uh, no, and, and number five Ren let's see I think that this time around, uh, I am doing much less of the MVP and much more trying to put out an EVP. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So you know, many, many times over the years, and I think many startups do this, right? We're encouraged to release kind of the smallest, crappiest version of the product we possibly can that will still validate whether there's a market there and... Um, will will determine whether you know whether you're on the right track, um, and I think that can work fine for a startup that has a very small audience or no audience at all, and is only going to be showing it to a few people and very unlikely to you know get a lot of attention and awareness, um, because you're not really burning a brand reputation. Uh, you don't have much of a brand to burn, right? You're you're so tiny and so new, and almost no one's heard of you. Um, that that MVP can work fine, but. As I learned at Moz many times, you know, releasing an MVP when you have a brand is a it's a really dangerous thing, um, and and there's this real phenomenon that uh, that happens when you do that. I've I've termed the MVP hangover, right? Essentially, this um, this problem you have where you you know release something small and crappy, and then people start to associate your brand with small crappy products, right? Incomplete or or not as extraordinary as it could be, or not as good as the competition, or um, you know buggy or slow or whatever it is, right? Whatever problems you choose to say, hey, you know what? It's good enough, and we need to get something out to market. 
Um, and instead, what we're, you know, what I, what I'm doing here, what I'm planning on doing is um, building a V1, an MVP, and showing that only to a few people privately, and iterating on it probably for a long time. It wouldn't surprise me if it's three to six months of iterating on a private beta product, uh, maybe longer, to get to a point where the people I show it to are extraordinarily impressed, you know, kind of blown away by it, love it, think it's the best thing ever, wish they could share it with people, you know, or sort of crying out like, when are you going to launch this so I can show it to people, mm -hmm. um, share it with my team and all that kind of stuff. And that's when we'll release. Uh, and I think that, you know, that sort of exceptional viable product um, is a much wiser bet when, you know, when you have a following, when you've got a big audience that will pay attention to things that you do. I mean, you know, yesterday, yesterday, day before yesterday, uh, we released a, a tiny little side project called Spark Score. It's just a little, you know, you enter your, your Twitter account and it does some, um, it pulls some metrics and, and gives a score out of 100 and then shows how it's calculated and gives an engagement score to show, you know, how relatively engaging your Twitter account is versus others with your relative reach and, and, and uh, follower size. Um, mm -hmm. And it got, uh, you know, it got like 15,000 visits in 48 hours and, you know, tons of people trying it out and paying attention to it. And Casey and I almost had this like, oh, man, you know, maybe we should have put even more work into this thing knowing how we'd known how popular it was going to be. And that's not, you know, it's totally free. It's not even a, a paid product. So hopefully we won't be judged too harshly for the fact that it's, you know, maybe leans a little bit minimal. Um, but I, I think that uh, being aware, being cautious about the fact that if you've built a brand and you have a marketing, you know, platform, you better put out great stuff. Otherwise, you're going to be judged and viewed as someone who puts out crappy stuff. Right, right. I think I think it's really really great advice, and also uh, I don't want to I want I want to capture the the essence of also saying that it's important to build an audience and hype before you launch. Like I'm on oh, the yeah. Spark Tour website, website, and right now you have the, the the book being promoted there. You have a lot of amazing blog posts, and the main call to action is get an email when Spark Tour launches, right? And people know who you are based on your work. Uh, people are going to see this piece of content. People have read your book. And now you have this massive group of people that's just waiting for the tool to be released. And whether it's in a few months or six months, whatever it is, you now have somebody that will buy it on day one uh, and try it. And, and then it's on your shoulders to live up to that hype. But that's a much better way to go to market than saying, let me release the minimum feature feature set and try to find out all the things that are wrong with it, have people complain and then still retain a loyal following. So I really like yeah. that. Yeah. I think that, I think if people are much more, you know, they're much more sort of set for, Hey, this product is not yet pu being publicly released. Let me give feedback. Let me see what's wrong with it. Let me see how it could be improved. And, and sort of, you know, I view this company as an in R and D phase, um, when I view a product in a private beta that I'm invited to versus an MVP that's launched publicly where I think, okay, this is what this company is about. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I love it. Um, we're almost out of time, Ren. Um, I would love to keep this conversation going, but I would like to wrap it up. So um, given the, the nature of the discussion, you're talking about your experiences with Moz and now with SparkToro, uh, any parting thoughts you want to leave founders with uh, that are trying to build their own respective business and, and what they should take away from this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the biggest things that's been valuable for me over time is that if, um, 
you know, if there's a best practice, lots of people are doing things one way and it's sort of viewed as the, you know, um, the, the trend or the, um, the way tech is going or, or whatever kind of business you're building, uh, I think it pays to question that, that best practice, to question the common belief, to question the standard path. Uh, and I have certainly seen a lot of value. It's not always wrong. Uh, there's certainly lots of nuggets of wisdom that you can glean from it, but I think it always is smart to question why those best practices exist and whether they're right for you. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think that's really good advice. Um, last but not least for me, Ren, I really want to appreciate you for doing this. I think what I thoroughly am enjoying about your book, and I'm going to read a cover to cover for sure, is that uh, it's incredibly vulnerable. Uh, and I think that's something we don't see in the startup world uh, enough of. And I really believe vulnerability is power. And it's hard to talk about some of this stuff. But by by sharing your experience, you're really going to be a lighthouse to a lot of people who are trying to find their way. So I really appreciate you doing that. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. You bet. Cheers. That's it for today's episode, guys. Before you end this episode, I have a few requests. Uh, One, if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Number two, please leave a rating and review uh, just so that other people who are looking for similar information or podcasts like this can discover it better. And number three, if you want to work with us at How to Sass, check out the website www.howtosass.com or email me directly. Uh, that's shiv at howtosass.com. Uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.